Hi, this is Tom Lavin. I'm the leader of the band known as uh, Tom Lavin and the Legendary Powder Blues. Happy to be here talking. You're listening to Talking Blues. I understand that you're learning how to play the piano. Is that correct? Yeah, I was really... Uh, close with a guy named Linton Garner. Now, Linton Garner was the older brother of Earl Garner, who wrote Misty, who was a very famous jazz pianist. Linton, I guess, never achieved the same level of notoriety, but he was really in the scene. In fact, the <clears throat> very first uh, Miles Davis record, which is called Boppin' the Blues, I believe Linton was the pianist and the uh, session leader on that session. He played with a uh, uh, number of uh, well-known bands over the years. Uh, he started out, I think, originally as a cornet player and then moved to piano. Um, I know he was the band leader for Billy Eckstein for a number of years just past the war. So I became friends with him gosh, probably in the 70s sometime, and we stayed friends uh, throughout his life right until he died at 87 years old. He was playing at a little restaurant here in Vancouver called Rossini's, and I used to go in and see him all the time and listen to his sort of minimalistic solo piano playing. I'd sit on a bench right up at the treble end of the piano and watch him play and I never been able to play piano and I had never known how to read music but after watching Linton for a while I found that I could spontaneously sort of play in a, in a way and when he died I, I really was missing that and uh, listening to him and I wanted to get better at playing those tunes that I'd heard him play and there was an old guy that taught piano here who had taught so many really well-known uh, musicians over the decades. His name was Lloyd Abram. He died last year in his late 80s. Uh, he had taught David Foster. Um, he had taught um, Robbie Buchanan, who was Bette Midler's uh, uh, musical director. Um, I think he had uh, worked with Michael Krieber, who was uh, Katie Lang's musical director. He was an extremely well-known guy, and, and over the years, I had gone into piano lounges and listened to people playing jazz standards with chord substitutions I liked, and I would always ask them who wrote the arrangement, and they would always say Lloyd Abrams. So when Linton passed away, I thought, well, here's what I'll do. I'll call Lloyd Abrams and see if he'll take me on as a piano student. So I, I called a friend of mine who knew him, and I got his number, I phoned him up, and uh, I said, uh, I heard your name for years, and I wonder if I could come out and take a piano lesson from you. And he said, well, one won't do you any good. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I just thought maybe we could get together and, and do a lesson and, and see if we could work together, and uh, then I would continue and do lessons. He says, well, I'm far too busy. Call me back in September. This was May. So I waited until September and I called him back. I said, hi, it's Tom. I called you last May. You told me to call, call you back now when you weren't so busy. And he said, all right, here's my address. Come out and see me Tuesday morning. So I walked into his 
little bungalow there to, at the lower level. Um, there was a, a basement and he had a little piano in there and sitting just amongst hundreds of music books and sheet music everywhere and twiddling away at the piano. At the time, I guess I must have been oh, 55 years old, I think, or maybe more. And he looked at me and he said, well, what can I do for you, young shaver? And I said, well, I, I don't play piano and I can't read music, but I'm interested in learning. And he said, not another one. Why even bother? <laughs> and I said, well, I, you know, I, just something I've always wanted to do. And I can sort of play a little bit by ear and spontaneously, but I'd like to know what I'm doing. He says, he says, okay, sit down. He said, do you know the lines and spaces on a treble staff, what the, what the letters are called? And I said, yeah, I know that. And he said, do you know the difference between a whole note and a half note and a quarter note? And I said, yeah, I know that. So he took a piece of staff paper and he wrote down a single note melody on a treble staff. And he slapped it on the piano. And he said, do you know the names of the keys on the piano? And I said, yeah, I know that. He says, all right, play this. But I looked at the sheet music and I had to count up, you know, with my finger every good boy B and then B on the piano and poke it down. And it made me sit there and do that for about three minutes. I, I went through the little melody he'd written and located all the notes. He looked at me and he said, we'll have you jobbing in six months. <laughs> As if that was the reason I was coming to him was to learn to play piano to get a job. <laughs> and I thought, well, this guy is great. So I took about two or three months worth of lessons weekly from him. I go in for about an hour every day and he'd show me a few things. He had his own method for teaching, which I found really incredibly intuitive. It sort of, that reminded me of, um, you know, the very, very first time you balance on a two wheel bicycle and somebody's next to you and yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways to do that. You know, some people are very heavy handed, but this guy, he'd give you a little push. And the minute he thought you were going to tip, he'd just touch you on the elbow, the slightest touch and you you'd get your balance back again. And uh, I thought, what an amazing, gifted teacher. So he, he showed me the fundamentals of of the piano and how to play the scales and um, how to voice chords. And, and then he showed me his sort of quick method for substitution jazz chording for, for using polytonal harmonies, which made a lot of sense. I mean, he was really working off tritones and stacking different tritones. And um, it's just, he gave me so much information that I just literally, I took it home and, and, uh, and chewed it up really slowly and swallowed it. And I've been doing it ever since. Now he and I stayed friends all through the, the remaining years and every six months or so I'd come in with some questions or I'd reach some kind of plateau in my playing. Uh, but he always had uh, interest in answers and examples for me. And we became very, very close. I had, in fact, taken him 
many years before to uh, um, just after uh, to, we would go out and see jazz piano players. I remember going out with, uh, we would just go and hang out and occasionally I'd go and pick him up and help him into the car and drive him to a jazz club or something to see uh, jazz pianists. And he, it was great to sit there and hear him analyze style. So, um, yeah, I learned to read basically. I don't, I just read jazz fake books so I can look at the, the treble staff and play the melody and I, I know I can look at a chord symbol and know all the different ways to voice the chord. And so I started learning the, um, I guess what they call the great American songbook. So now I can do probably three or 400 standards by memory. And if my memory fails me, I can, uh, go back to the music, but to be able just to read and to l play a chord and know how to name it was just opened uh, an incredible door for me and um, availed me of all the brilliant writing. I could sit there and actually analyze Charlie Parker's solos. I could see how Her Harold Arlen or Jerome Kern would affect a, a, a key transition uh, and and it, uh, I've just been fascinated ever since. So yeah, a lot of my spare time, I just sit in my room here and and, uh, and peck away at my piano. Wow. Obviously, you're a great guitar player. How different is it to approach the piano, having had the experience with the, your guitar for all your life? As soon as I as soon as I uh, got an idea of the piano by looking at how Linton Garner played, I knew immediately I should have been a piano player my whole life. It made total sense to me. I mean, there's only one middle C on a piano. Right. On a guitar, you can play that on any number of strings in any different place or position. So I guess in some ways, uh, Guitar is easier, particularly when you're um, moving from key to key. If you if you know a pattern, you can simply move it up or down vertically, and and uh, change keys. Which on a piano, of course, you need different fingering for every scale. However, just the the graphicness and the way the piano was laid out made a lot of sense to me. I think more than that, though, I've always heard and been drawn to polychordal, I guess what they some people call crunch chords. And you can only play partials of those on the guitar. Uh, you know, I had a, a good friend, Pat Coleman, one of the Canada's greatest jazz guitarists and teachers. And, um, you know, after knowing him for 40 years, I, I said, you're a frustrated piano player, aren't you? And he said, you bet, I, you know. I can only play bits of the chords that I want to on the guitar, just select some of the notes. And so I think that that's probably the, was the big magnetism towards piano is that I could voice chords fully in ways that I couldn't do on the guitar that I was sort of using the band to do, right? Because I was mm -hmm. voicing horns for the powder blues. I didn't know how to write, but I would sit at the piano on, with, usually with Bill Rungi, who, joined me in 1980 and I would play a note and say I want the baritone to play this this is the tenor note this is the alto note here are the two trumpet notes and here's what the chord sounds like and then he would 
write that down. So that, you know, previous to being able to write, which which I can write now, but it's, it's incredibly slow for me because I didn't learn until I was maybe 60, right? So it's not something that comes second nature. I have a, an 11-year-old daughter who plays the violin, and sometimes I'll write out the head to a jazz tune for her so we can have a duet. I think we, we just did one, an old Duke Ellington tune called um, I've Got It Bad and That Ain't Good. But just writing the lead sheet for that violin, and of course, she, I have to write tabulature, like fingering above the notes for her too, so I had to figure out where the notes are in a violin, which is sort of rough since I've got a hand so big I can pick up a basketball with one. <laughs> it doesn't fit that well on her little three-quarter violin. But that, I mean, just taking it right in a lead sheet for her probably take me a couple hours. And, you know, any normal composing, arranging pro musician would laugh. They could do it in 10 minutes. Did you wind up doing gigs as a piano player? I have, actually, you know, and, and it's been really marvelous. It's like uh, somebody called me up after, I, you know, I've been playing for a number of years, and I, and I had, you know, easily a couple hundred tunes in my head that I could play in, in keys as written. Um, but, you know, I was no virtuoso. And, and I thought, well, this is great. I'll just I'll call up a bass player and a drummer, and, I, and I'll do it piano trio. So I called up two guys I knew and um, marvelous players. They previously had played with um, Mose Allison and a lot of other people. So, you know, they were just the right guys for piano trio. And I said, oh, I've got this gig. You want to do it? And they said, sure. They get us some charts. And uh, then all of a sudden, once I'd accepted it, I realized, oh, when I buy myself, I can play any intro. And I can end it any way I want. And here I'm going to have to write arrangements for these tunes that I know. <laughs> guys to play. And wow, did I ever sweat. I spent a couple of weeks just scribbling away and trying to get the 30 or 40 tunes I think we did into a book. And then we went and played a gig. I think it was at the Royal Vancouver Yacht Club. And uh, and it worked out great. And, and it was like a, an ethereal experience for me because I realized, oh, I don't have to worry about the left-hand bass notes. I've got a bass player. And, oh, I don't have to worry about speeding up or slowing down. I've got a drummer. And I felt this, uh, this incredible feeling of freedom. It reminded me, you know, we were on tour with Powder Blues, I guess might have been 81. And for a while, we had so many gigs that we actually had to charter a, a twin-engine turboprops uh, so that we could make all the gigs. So we were at the end of a little two-week run in this plane. I think we were, fl we were flying back from Williams Lake to Vancouver or something, with the band in the back. I think this was only like a, I don't know what it was, an Aero Commander might have been a 10-seater or something. And I'd been co-piloting the whole time, and occasionally the guy would, you know, be showing me stuff and let me do this or that, a nice pilot. We come over the mountains in uh, North Vancouver, and he says, "Well, there's Vancouver International. Take her in." As a joke, and he said, "It's yours." And he, you know, let go of of the controls, and all of a sudden, I felt the plane sort of fully in my hands. 
And it was like the bottom dropped out of everything. And I was just, I, up until that point, I hadn't been feeling like I was 8,000 feet in the air. I guess hard to explain, but that was the sort of feeling I got with the, with the trio was that, wow, I'm flying, this is great. So I've done a few more since then. Um, and, and I just love it, but I mean, there really aren't that many piano trio gigs, particularly during C-19. So I would love to do it some more. That's amazing. I learned so much when I do that. It frees me up to be able to, to uh, improvise and, and so on and so forth. So I know, I, I presume that when you're out with Powder Blues, it's, you don't really have to think about what you're doing next on the guitar. Is it, have you gotten to that point on the piano that you're quite comfortable with just being in the moment and going wherever you want to go? Sometimes. You know, there's that, there's all those times of false ego too, where you're absolutely cruising and then all of a sudden you forget where you are in the tune. But when you're in a trio, that's not a problem because you just lay out for a second and it comes right back to you. Yeah, I feel, you know, pretty relaxed. It's very different though. I mean, for me, piano is something that I really think about and, and practice. Uh, you know, sadly, I admit, that the only time I've ever really played a guitar is on stage. And literally, when I come off tour, off the last plane flight, the packing tape is around my guitar case, and it never even comes off until the next gig. I fly somewhere else, and I take scissors and cut the tape off. Um, and I guess I did that purposely, in a way. Um, how to explain this? It's like you've seen comics who are funny because they improvise and work with what's there at the moment. And then you see comics that really practice a routine. So if you see them night after night, it's pretty well exactly the same lines. I guess um, I, I like the feeling of getting on stage with Powder Blues and putting myself in the position of sink or swim. So I don't, I haven't rehearsed a lot of solos or practiced a lot of licks. And I have to really think and listen and feel and strive for emoting and getting in touch with myself. Otherwise it doesn't work. It sort of puts me right up against the wall and says, you have no choice. You really have to connect and be real. And I think it's possible that going there has um, maybe made the listener's experience um, intense. So even with a band that's based around a horn set, not based around, but with a horn section, which I presume has to be charted and there, there has to be certain musical cues that they have to follow, you, you have that freedom to kind of go anywhere else, but within the framework of the song? Yeah, but I mean... There's visual cues too, uh, you know, the, the, the horn sections, I have two horn sections, one primarily for the West Coast and uh, one primarily for uh, Ontario and East. Right. And they're, they're, you know, both made up of, you know, just unbelievably good technical musicians. So once they play through a chart, you know, they, they pretty well have it down. 
and I can wave them off if I want to stretch the solo or improvise or change the arrangement. And um, they're all in, very intuitive. I'm so fortunate to always be on stage with players whose technical ability far supersedes mine. How did the guitar come into your life? Ah. Well, let's see. That probably would have been around 1950, summer of 1954. My dad was running a, a owned a do-it-yourself unfinished furniture store. So he'd sell pieces of furniture and then the stains or paints to take it home and do it yourself. And, and uh, there was a partition at the back of the store and we lived in the back of that store. We had a single ceramic hot plate. There was no, no tub, no shower. We had a janitor's sink. There was one room, a little tiny fridge no windows there was one small section in a wall of glass block that let in a bit of natural light and then out the back door was the loading bay where furniture would come in in cardboard boxes and go downstairs now in the basement of this old building probably built at turn of last century uh, my dad had uh, put up um, table saws and whatever and so he would also take commissions for custom cabinetry so if they couldn't find something in the store the right size, they, they'd pay him and he'd saw up the lumber. So I remember many times at, at three and four years old going to sleep to the buzz of a, of a circular table saw or a band saw screaming in the basement. We pretty well breathed sawdust all the time. We had one handyman who sort of was a utility outfielder. He, he operated as a salesman in the front in the, in the little furniture store, and he uh, was a gopher and a second pair of hands in the cabinet uh, shop in the basement. His name was Fred Heckle, and he was from Oklahoma. And what he would do on the weekends was he was a square dance caller. You know, grab your partner, swing your little yeah. high, high and a do -si do and that sort of stuff. And, uh, and he played um, a tenor guitar and also a little guitar, four-string guitar with doubled strings, actually eight strings, called a tipple um, in a strange sort of tuning. So he would, I guess, be a bit of a performer too. So I guess it was the summer of 54. I'd been four and a half, and he brought me ukulele. He'd been married once for a year to a woman named Maggie and had never remarried and was very bitter about it. I guess it ended badly. And so the very first song he taught me to play on a ukulele and to sing was, um, I only want a buddy, not a sweetheart, because buddies never make you blue. <laughs> and you're playing this at the age of four? Four and a half, I guess. He showed me the four, three or four chords he needed to, to strum this. So I, yeah, um, and I know, I know it's that year because that by 19, by February of 1956, I had moved to a suburb of Chicago. This was in Evanston, right on the, the north border of Chicago. It was a, you know, a northern city and an, an integrated city, but integrated in 
the way many of those northern cities were with the black side and the white side. I sort of lived more on the black side, so many of my first friends in kindergarten and first half of grade one were were African American. And uh, I think that's probably why I got into blues too, is because I'd go over to my best friend's house, Stuart White, whose skin tone was absolutely purple black. Uh, and um, he used to listen to WJJD, which was a rhythm and blues station and a blues station. And I, I first, I guess I first heard that music at his house and at his cousin Rotney next door. R-O-T-N-E-Y, Rotney. <laughs> Unbelievable. And um, yeah, so we were, we would listen to the black, um, you know, that house had the music on all the time, except when they went to sleep, uh, the, the little tube radio top of the fridge. So we, list, we would listen to that a lot while we played. And then shortly thereafter, I guess, maybe by the time we'd moved and I was six, on Sunday mornings, I, my, my uh, dad would take me down sometimes to Maxwell Street Market. And that's where, you know, Lefty Diz and Hound Dog Taylor and all those guys would set up on a Sunday morning with a little cigar box and mm-hmm. play the blues on uh, Silverton, Sears and Roebuck Silverton guitars and try and get your nickel or your quarter. And uh, I was totally fascinated with that. So I think that, yeah, that's probably my first taste of the blues was WJJD and, and Maxwell Street. Wow. I hear about Maxwell Street, and it just seems so amazing to me. Oh, it was. Just a mind blower. Mm-hmm. I, I went there as a kid, and then actually as, as a teen, I actually I set up a stall on Sunday morning. But you, know, you could just get everything there and the, the neighborhood had such history and it sort of had personal history for me too because my father's father um, had a tailoring shop there and that was right um, in that neighborhood a block away was the original Vienna kosher Red Hots factory hmm. so in the well, see my dad was born in 1924 Around that time, that was a Jewish neighborhood and a garment district. There were a lot of sweatshops, you know, factories with women sitting shoulder to shoulder at sewing, sewing machines. Right. And then right after World War, and that lasted up until 1945 or so. And then at the close of World War II, there was a mass migration from the Deep South, which would have been Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and so on, up the Mississippi River, and some of the blacks were in uh, moved into St. Louis, and some of them moved in. A lot of them moved into Chicago because there was so many uh, manufacturing jobs that were paying better than trying to be a sharecropper in the South. And I think that's when the blues really moved up the Mississippi River from the Deep South, and we started to see in the late 40s and early 50s, the rise of that, uh, you know, Little Walter and and Muddy Waters and Willie Dixon and, and all those guys that pretty well spelled the foundation of uh, chess records and uh, the Chicago blues sound. And then there were some that made it up all the way to the car factories in Detroit, and Detroit had its own blues sound too. Hooker, Johnny Hooker hung out in Detroit for a long while too. So 
Yeah. You just absolutely get everything, anything, you know, you could buy the hubcaps off your own car. <laughs> um, you got to, you got to work with some of those people and you, you got to, I presume, be friends with some of those people, um, like John Lee Hooker. Tell me about that experience and what that meant to you. You know, I don't know where my head was at, but when I'm, you know, I had heard records from these guys, but, you know, personally, and it just, in my own skin, I just felt like they were, you know, musicians. Like, I never rushed to get my picture taken next to them and go, oh, this is a famous guy. Right. I just related to them. And I think maybe some of them liked that. Like, they... I didn't do it on purpose. It's just, that's just the way it was. So I've got, you know, a lot of casual pictures of me and John Lee or various other guys um, that we became, you know, on, you know, friendly basis and would see each other regularly. It wasn't like, uh, I didn't really feel hero worship. Um, I've, and yeah, I've, I've been, I witnessed many, unbelievable uh, performances by these guys. I've seen them play well and I've seen them play badly and I can say the same for for myself. The first guy that was really nice to me, I was I was 17, I was on my own. I was living on the north side of Chicago on Lincoln Park on uh, on Clark Street and there was this bar across the street. And I, I walked by one late late one afternoon and there was this fat short guy playing an electric blues mandolin hmm. and he was so chubby that the mandolin sat up under his chin sort of flat with the hole looking up to the sky like it almost looked like a bow tie on him and he was sort of playing electric mandolin licks that sounded like bb king and uh, I just loved it. He was singing, playing, you know, there must have been 15 people in the bar drinking beer. And and I ran across the street and, I, you know, I, I brought my little guitar and amp and I said, could I play with you? And he said, sure. And so we, we sat there and played some, some blues that afternoon. And he says, well, I'm back here, you know, every Saturday at four and come back next week if you want. And so I started playing with him, and that was Southside Johnny Young, who I guess is not as famous as, you know, Willie Dixon and Muddy Waters, but uh, anybody that's really into the the blues scene in Chicago at that time, that would have been, that year would have been 1967, I was 17. So that's really the first Chicago blues guy I actually played with. But I had seen them. I mean, I, I saw the Muddy Waters band, I saw Otis Span, I saw... Pine Top Perkins, I saw Lafayette Leak, I saw Little Walter. Coming up as a boy, my mother's younger sister uh, was living out by University of Chicago, and they had a, a a real small hall out there called the Convocation Hall that um, where they would put on blues concerts. Because at that time, I guess this would have been the early 60s now. I probably would have been 10, 11, 12 when I saw those concerts. Um, blues was, um, you know, in, in college, in university college circles, it was being 
thought of as, oh, Americana and folk music and stuff. And so these were curiosities to see these guys play. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess it was part of that sort of left ethical humanist uh, democratic socialist movement that was happening. You know, this was people's music. And so I got to see some really great blues shows. I, I saw James Cotton very early on. I think I probably saw Cotton right about the time and I'm not sure of the dates now, but probably right about the time where he had joined Muddy's band. Right. Um, yeah, but that is absolutely that that made a huge impression on me. And uh, you know, I had so many good experiences with them. BB King was always very, very kind and supportive. I think I was maybe 22 or 23. I'm looking at a picture right now on my wall that I have signed by him which I had him sign like 30 years later. So I'm, I'm playing in a trio. That's just acoustic guitars and voices. And we're opening for B.B. King at the Queen Elizabeth Theater in Vancouver. And I would think by looking at me, I have, you know, more than shoulder length, long hair and a beard and a mustache. I look a lot, very much like a hippie. Could have been 1972. I might have been around 22 years old. And this is taken in the dressing room underneath the stage at the Queen Elizabeth Theater. Now, B.B.'s sitting on a chair, and I'm sitting on the floor looking up to him. And behind him on the dressing room counter is a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. And you can <laughs> actually see Colonel Sanders on it, which is sort of ironic because it's very possible that Colonel Sanders' dad owned B.B.'s dad at some point. And there's some stubby brown uh, bottles it looks like old vienna or something with the caps off and bb is in a peach and purple vertical narrow striped polyester leisure suit looking very chubby with a little bit of an afro and he's holding a drumstick in his left hand <laughs> and he's gesturing to me with his right hand looking down at me and being, you know, I mean, I look like a weirdo. And he, and he was just very, I guess he knew I was the opening act or something. And I was in there just to talk to him. And he was being very, very kind. And I had just asked him a question. I said, I heard you do uh, Sweet Little Angel tonight. And, and uh, it sounded like you played it for the first time. But I know you've been playing that song for you know, 20, at least 20 years. And he said, yeah, that's right. And I said, well, how do you do that? And he said, uh, he said, well, son, there are probably some people out there that don't know who a B.B. King is. And I'm here to make sure that they don't get the wrong idea. Something to that effect that he had to go back and play every song like it was the first time just to make sure that he wasn't being misunderstood. And that, that you know, doesn't sound like such a heavy thing to hear, but it made a lot of connection in me. And I think I've used that. He gave me a pick which said B.B. King on it, which I had for decades afterwards. But I mean, subsequently, within the next few years, particularly by 1978, 79, uh, 80, 81, right through the 90s, we played so many shows with him. 
mm-hmm. many different places. I interviewed him on radio. Uh, I was uh, did shows where I was actually interviewing and playing with him on television. Um, so we had a lot of a lot of crossover. But I think that show that I saw, uh, which I originally referred to here back in '72, was the very best BB King I had ever seen. Uh, his band was. Um, Oh, what was the name of those guys? The brothers. Uh, it'll come to me in a minute. The, uh, Bobby was the drummer, and his left-handed brother was the bass player. But they were—they were just an incredible, an incredible band. And one thing happened that night that I recall BB King doing, which. I've never, ever seen any other performer pull off. The crowd was very enthusiastic. Queenie must hold like 2,700 people or something. So he was getting close to near the end of his show, and he finished off uh, some one of his classic tunes, and there was applause, and the applause built to a peak. And just as the applause came off the peak and started to die down, he counted in the ending again, and he played it and stopped the tune again. And that time, the applause began again and went higher. And just as it peaked and began to fall off, he did it again. And he did it maybe five, six times. And each time, the applause was higher to the point where the audience was applauding themselves for applauding. The whole place melted and it went nuts. And I have never seen anybody have that kind of magnetism and, and crowd control and, and the ability to, to, to just engineer that kind of an ovation. It, it, was, uh, it was quite amazing. Wow. I, I know that you were playing in teen clubs. I think it's, um, I forgot the band's name, um, The Nightshade. Oh, wow, that goes way back to my teen years. That would have been 1967 in around the Chicagoland area. Yeah. So you played in teen clubs, which were non-alcoholic, but... That's right. Um, and then you kind of graduated to high school tours with other bands like the Turtles. and Yeah, that Turtles and, and me have played a history, interesting little synchronicity that goes back. At what point did you think this is what you were going to do? Uh, like, did you know then that you would be a musician? I think, um, I think it hit me probably, I was maybe 18. And I had a, a friend who was, I guess what they would call white trash. He was from West Virginia sort of like of of coal miner town hillbilly descent pretty tough guy who could play the harmonica blues harmonica which was sort of weird because some of those mountain boys are sort of racist but he wasn't like that I, he was a little older than me and pretty unafraid and so he uh, you know, I expressed I guess I would have been 18 and I told him I was interested in blues and playing blues and uh, he said, well, there's some blues joints on the south side of, of Chicago we could go visit. And um, he took me down to one. And uh, 
we walked in and I actually, you know, it's like ignorance. You know, I didn't, I didn't, e didn't even know what I was getting into. And we walked into an all black club. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was the checkerboard lounge. If, if my memory doesn't serve me correctly. And, um, I was just stupid. I didn't know. I, you know, I, they, somebody said, we well, want to come and play. And I, I, put my little white super guitar and I think I played going to Kansas City with uh, the bass player and the drummer. As I was on stage, I looked at the door and there was sort of a partition that was shoulder high so you could only see you know, head and shoulders of somebody coming in the door until they rounded the partition. And I looked over and, and it, was, it was Junior Wells and he was dressed really formally, sort of like with a very flashy tuxedo and ruffles at his neck and he came around the corner and he was dragging a shotgun by the barrel with the the end of it on the ground was angry and looking for somebody nothing occurred in the club at that time but you know i drank a couple of beers and no one messed with me because they must have thought that we were completely crazy because we were the only two non-black faces in the this joint, and I could see some smiles up at the bar, like, boy, these 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 boys don't know what they've got themselves into. But I was fearless just because I was ignorant. I just I remember drinking a couple of beers and then going into this, uh, going into the back to relieve myself, and I was in this really horrible, rundown bathroom with paint peeling off the walls and the smell of stale urine and a single bare light bulb hanging from the ceiling, had my hand up against the wall to sort of steady myself. And I thought to myself, yeah, I could see myself doing this from here on out. Wow. So that, I think it happened in the checkerboard lounge, yeah. So at that point, were you, did you think yourself as a really good guitar player? Oh, God, no. Oh. <laughs> I was... I was horrible. I was just starting. And my main instrument is in the teen clubs had been the bass. I had never really played guitar much. I mean, I'd play a little folk guitar. Not too long after that, though, you moved to Canada. Uh, that would have been September of uh, um, 1969. With the idea of going to film school and to do recording? working in recording studios? Well, yeah. What happened was I was going to Roosevelt University in Chicago and they were having a tryout for the Chicago Company of Hair. And so I tried out and I guess, you know, in my weird hippie way, I was the one, the one at the tryout lineup that all the newspaper photographers thought was the quintessential hippie. <laughs> so my my picture wound up on the cover of of a lot of the daily papers, you know, hippies aspire to Chicago hair company or whatever the headline was. I must have one of those pictures around that somebody, my mother cut it out or something. And uh, <clears throat> then that was right about the time that I think my draft number came up and it was a low number and I hadn't been called, but what I was worried was that they were going to, stop the, the lottery and just draft everybody. And I thought, well, maybe they'll shut the borders. And, and I was really against the war. I was, you know, a pretty a left-wing type of hippie guy. And I thought, well, rather than go to college here in, uh, 
in Chicago. Maybe I should go to college out of the country. And at that point, my girlfriend at the time had left to, to go live with her, her girlfriend who moved to Vancouver, B.C., which I'd never heard of because the girlfriend's father was a math prof and got a job at University of British Columbia. So I went up to visit her, and I thought, hey, this is a pretty cool town. <laughs> And nobody's ever even heard of the blues here. I bet you I could move here and start a blues band and be unique. And so, yeah, one thing led to another. And by September of uh, 69, I was enrolled in the Vancouver College of Art. And I had been at the time uh, of that hero audition. I was going to Roosevelt, and one of my teacher's husbands was at the Art Institute of Chicago, and he was making a film. And he wanted me to be in the film. And so I was acting for him. And my, my deal with him was I'd act for free if he would give me all the outtakes of his film so I could cut my own film from it. <laughs> so I got all this footage and I, I cut it all together and I submitted it as my portfolio to Vancouver School of Art and I was accepted and I came up. And then I started living in Vancouver and... I went to the dean of the school and I said, listen, um, in order to keep my student deferment and stay legal with U.S. government, you need to write a letter to my draft board. And here's my draft board address and please uh, let them know that I'm a student here. Well, it didn't happen, but I didn't know it didn't happen. So on a break from school, I went back to Chicago. A friend called me, said, oh, we got a good gig in a club. Why don't you come back here and We'll make some money. And I flew back and I was playing with these guys. Uh, one night in, in uh, deep in the cold in February, coming off, coming home after the last set at 3 a.m. in a, in a funky old pickup uh, van, had a tail light out and I got pulled over and they ran my name and immediately arrested me and impounded my car. And I thought, what the hell? And they took me to this tiny little jail out the outskirts of town, locked me in a little cement block cell, freezing, and uh, wouldn't tell me. And then they said, well, have, have you been in, in Missouri? And I said, well, yeah, I was down in, in um, New Orleans about a month ago, and I came back from Missouri. And he said, well, you wanted on a murder charge in Missouri. And I said, what the? You know, and then I I was sitting in there thinking, just seeing the wheels of justice turn wrong and me hitting the electric chair for something I'd never done. Right. It was a pretty bad night. Anyway, in the morning, a black four-door sedan showed up, and there were a couple of Joe Fridays in trench coats and crew cuts came out and uh, pulled me out of jail and said, you're under arrest for draft evasion. And they took me downtown Chicago and threw me in a cell. And uh, it turned out that the dean of the art school had never let my draft board know. Wow. And so I had gone on to be a, a draft dodger, which, in fact, I wasn't. I was, I thought for sure I was legal. Right. Anyway, they gave, it pushed me to shove, and they gave me a choice of uh, volunteering for infantry duty with the Army in uh, Vietnam. I'd already lost a number of buddies. Or five years in uh, Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary for draft evasion. Yikes. And uh, obviously, I didn't go to, to jail. But to carry on with that, that's a whole, that's a whole other story. 
So what, what the murder charge that they told you oh, about? Oh, that's just, just they were just trying to scare me. I'm sure it worked. Oh, well, yeah. Okay, at that point, are you are you a good guitar player? Like, because for you to be doing studio work in, hey, in hey, Vancouver. Let's, let's get this straight. I don't consider myself a good guitar player at present. Okay. I, I have, you know, I have high standards when it comes to who I think is a good guitar player. And it's just, to me... It's not at all so much about technique. Sure, I have the respect for guys that, you know, have stellar technique. I mean, who who wouldn't be impressed by somebody like Steve Vai or, you know, right. or Eddie Van Halen or, or those guys? And, and I was a Hendrix fan, and I knew Stevie Ray pretty well before the public did and was really impressed with his playing. And there, there's, there's guitar players like that, but I, I never aspired to that. The guys that that get to me the most are the guys that emote and speak to me. And a lot of those guys, I, I, I tend to be a minimalist, I think. So I'm often more impressed with less notes than with more. But good enough to seek work in recording studios. Well, I was a bass player uh, up until uh, just... 76 that was my main instrument then i joined uh, dale jacobs and cobra and we got a record deal with cbs masterworks label and so i was playing jazz fusion and i was playing guitar in that band but i was also uh doing session work as a drummer at that time made quite a few records none of them very notable um and doing jingles and things like that and then powder blues happened in 78 and my brother was bass player and i wanted to be in a band with him so i just switched to guitar full time that was pretty well the end of my bass playing career although i still love playing the bass but before that you were also on in prism right yeah that was ended in 76 and i played guitar initially i was rhythm guitar player with lindsey mitchell i never played lead in that band right and then when ab bryant left to join billy, billy henderson's chilliwack then they figured they didn't need a second guitar in the band, and they asked me would I go back and play the bass, which I was fine with. Uh, that was not particularly challenging bass role because at the time, a lot of the those rock songs were written with just sort of pedaling a single note. So do, 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 right? Right. Um, but yeah, it was fun. being. I, we played some gigs. I probably was on the road with those guys for about a year. We played with uh, Jim Dandy in Black Oak, Arkansas. We played with Blue Oyster Cult. We did shows with uh, Annie and Nancy Wilson, uh, the Heart Girls. Uh, uh, we we did shows with ZZ Top. We played with uh, the Little River Band. I can't remember all the shows. Might have been a Super Transform there, perhaps. I'm not sure. So now you're thinking this is what you're going to do. Gary Wright, Dreamweaver. I'm sure we played a show with him and with some of those guys. It's a long time ago. It's 40, 40 years now. More. Then you decide to join Powder Blues and also produce, I mean, self-produce and self-finance that first album, correct? Yeah. Which was probably an unusual thing, or am I wrong? Yeah, at that time, uh, yeah, probably. Maybe a risky thing? Well... I don't know. I didn't think in those terms. I thought, you know, we the band had been together for, you know, a year and a half, and I thought 
it was sounding pretty good and pretty tight and and i thought it was sort of unique and i thought well why not record it i had a recording studio to build a recording studio and we went in and did that first record because i had some connections in toronto with record labels because i had just placed a couple of years ago previous to that i'd placed the dale jacobs and cobra record with cbs and i knew some of the execs because i just knocked on their door i thought well why not you know a lot of people are showing up to the clubs to see powder blues it's sort of exciting here maybe the somebody will sign us and i took it around to every record company and they just everybody turned that first album down was doing it right and and hear that guitar ring and bopping with the blues and what have i been drinking and right there were a lot of singles off that record right um and but nobody at the record companies heard it they said oh no no one's gonna buy this CBS actually did test marketing and came back and told me if we if we spent 30,000 in marketing this would sell 5,000 records and we would be $25,000 in debt. So that was their test marketing. And I I was sort of convinced that people might buy this record and so, so again, you know, through my innocence and ignorance, I just I went to a place called Praise Records that had only ever pressed Christian hymn music and, uh, you know, Christian church sort of music. That's what they call right. praise. And um, I pressed a, a maybe a thousand copies and they were gone and instantly. And, and I went back and pressed another 2,000. And I remember one of the, guy, the two guys, they were Eastern Europeans. I, I don't remember their last name right now. But I think one of them, Milos, was his first name. He said... Why is he selling so many records? Is there something dirty on it? <laughs> Which I thought was sort of interesting coming from a man at a Christian record label. I, I assured him there was nothing dirty, but I guess he must have thought it was devil's music. And so, yeah, we wound up, I wound up pressing probably more than 40,000 records at Praise Records. Uh, it was a very good plant, it was very high quality. It was almost, it was really old school. It was 50s, man. They had the blobs of vinyl and the, and the little hot plates that melted them down and the presses would come and squeeze and then a woman would come around with a knife and trim the edges off. It was really amazing to watch. And we did a limited edition with a virgin transparent sky blue vinyl. I think there were a thousand of those out. Apparently, somebody told me on eBay those are getting those are going for a lot of money. I, I don't have one, but I yeah. So at that point, and then I took all those records and I just I got a list of FM stations or something, and I just remember I bought some Manila envelopes and I just hand lettered them with a sharpie and sent all these packages out with a little note that says you know we're a band from Vancouver and. People seem to like it and wanted to listen to this and see if there's something you can play on it. And that was a different time. That would have been 1979. And lo and behold, there was still the time of disc jockeys. And uh, some of them found a tune or two and put it on the radio. And uh, people started calling in saying, who the hell was that? I guess we didn't sound like anyone else. It was sort of a, a non-technical record. I didn't use much reverb. It all sounded sort of fly and live, which is what I wanted. I just wanted it to sound like the band. There was very little overdubbing. And uh, the next thing you know, well, Sweet Little Girl hit on FM and got to be a hit. And then I guess AM was looking for something poppier. And so they picked 
doing it right. And at that point, I went back to Toronto and I said, hey, I've already sold 40,000 of these and you guys never sell 40,000 of hardly anything these days. And so then there was this sort of a bidding war that started and I wound up with RCA Records with the late John Ford. And we later became very good friends. And they did a marvelous job for us. And uh, I mean, that record's probably sold more than a third of a million copies in Canada. Right. So obviously you believe in what you do, but did that surprise you when when it took off like that? Because if I'm not mistaken, there weren't that many blues songs on radio at that time. There was none. And uh, I mean, I don't know if it surprised me. I mean, certainly it was sort of thrilling. I mean, I remember we were on the road somewhere in northern Alberta. I think we were heading to Stony Plain, Alberta or something at dusk, and I could see a funnel cloud in the distance, and I turned on the radio, and it was doing it right. And I thought, this is sort of cool, <laughs> you know, to, to be in nowhere and, and hear something rather familiar. I think, if anything, what was trendsetting about it was that in those days, you know, every band had a manager and a manager would just sign the band to the record company and then the, the band would get uh, pennies on the dollar. Right. I don't think there was any um, artists that were getting even as much as a dollar uh, or uh, an LP. And I didn't want to do it that way. I didn't want to sell my masters. I said, well, I, I wrote these songs. Uh, most of them were co-wrote them. And I want to own the publishing, and I want to own the copyright to the songs. And if you want this, because it's already sold 40,000, 50,000 copies, if you want the rights to distribute this, I'll give you the rights to distribute this, but I own it. I own the master, and I will give you a time periods with which you can distribute it and make money for yourselves. And I think I've been told that that was, that, that was and I wrote a contract to that sense just i didn't know much about contracts and i think that's good at a time i just approached it as a contract being whatever two parties can agree upon in writing and i thought well what do i really want well i want to maintain control and so what i actually wound up doing was writing the first production company contract just by virtue of the fact that that's what i wanted it was sort of like a some people have said it was like a cookie cutter for production contracts that became more popular in the 80s and 90s later on. But some people credit that with being the first of its kind in Canada. I don't know. How did you know to do that? Like throughout your life, you have shown like extreme business sense. And I don't know where that comes from, but not only in music, but the other things that you pursued after, sorry, not after, but um, outside of music, you obviously have a very keen sense of business. Where did that come from? Well, I think you're probably giving me too much credit. It's, um, <laughs> I liked playing chess, and so you got to think ahead a little bit. I think basically a master's in business, an MBA degree, really comes down to two kids and a cookie. And they have to share the cookie. And so... The ideal way to do that, you know, the wisdom of Solomon says, give one kid the cookie and tell him he gets to break it in half. And tell the other kid he gets to choose which half he wants. Hmm. Well, nothing, no kid is ever going to 
be more fair in trying to get those pieces exactly the same size because it's inherent in the agreement. I think, you know, the classic, what they call the shotgun phrase in a contract is pretty well breaking the cookie. Uh, in, the, in a shotgun agreement, in a contract, if you and I are partners in a business and you say, I'm sick of you and I want to break up this partnership and I'll give you $10,000 for your end of the business. Well, the shotgun agreement says, whatever number you tell me you're willing to buy the business from me for, I'm allowed to buy it from you for that same price. So you better evaluate that business and what exactly what it's worth to you, not try to get it for any cheaper than it's worth. And um, I think that all contracts, if you if you look at you know each aspect of what may or may not happen in the future, that most contracts can be resolved with that kind of a, a dynamic. I don't think there's anything genius in that. It seems pretty uh, pretty straightforward to me. I think people overcomplicate uh, stuff. The worst contracts I've ever signed were ones that were okayed by super high price lawyers. Uh, and so I, I, once I did one or two of those, I learned my lesson and I didn't hire lawyers anymore to do it. I just said, common sense beats a lawyer every time. But, but even to know up way back then to keep possession of your masters, just that, I don't know if there were that many people who, who would have thought that. And, and certainly in the music industry, you know, the road is littered with musicians who really made bad deals. Oh, absolutely. And, and obviously that wasn't the case for you. You knew what you wanted. You, you were in a position to negotiate. And, and, and beyond that, you know, I think you got involved in other business ventures since, um, since then that, that kind of indicates to me that you're, you have a very keen business sense. Yeah, what is the thing Hunter Thompson said? He said, the music business is a cruel and shallow money trench a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men <laughs> die like dogs. There's also a negative side. <laughs> I like Hunter Thompson. I think uh, he's a clever, was mm -hmm. a clever guy. So when, when all this success happened, because it happened pretty quick on that first album, and then I presume you were touring all over the world, um, what did that feel like to you? Well, that was sort of, you know, it was, it was exciting, I guess. Um, I don't know, what did it feel like to me? I had a lot of interesting experiences. Going to Montreux Jazz Festival in uh, Switzerland was really good. The band was hot. And then there were, you know, Muddy Waters was, I mean, uh, sorry, Willie Dixon Band was there and he had, Two of his sons, one of his sons was playing piano and another one of his sons was playing electric bass and Willie was playing stand-up. And uh, I met Luther Allison there. That was really, uh, really interesting, you know, because that, that was at the time we had just moved out of Hollywood and, and uh, Montreux Talent Scout had seen us at Madame Wong's West in Santa Monica and asked if we wanted to to play in July and... and uh, at the festival, 
I'm sure we did. But I remember we were on soundcheck, and I, I had not met Luther Allison, and I, I had known of him. Now he's on stage playing guitar, and I thought, wow, that sounds a lot like the way I play blues guitar. And so um, I guess my guitar was on soundcheck, too, and I walked up, and I picked up the guitar, and I started playing along with him, and we... Um, as we were playing, we were sort of like walking towards each other. Kind of, it's just empty soundstage, right? We're soundtracking mm -hmm. in the afternoon. And I had the weird feeling, you know how you see a, a negative of a photograph and sometimes if you twist it in a certain light, the negative becomes positive and you see the photograph? Mm -hmm. There was a skinny black guy playing guitar and here was a skinny white guy playing guitar. And I was looking at him and listening to him there were some physical similarities about us, and there was a lot of musical similarity about us. And I thought, my goodness, that's sort of like my flip image. And the look on his face was pretty well the same. It, it was as though I imagined he was thinking the same thing, that we were reverses of each other. And we, uh, we had a real good time playing music together and did some jam sessions after. But that's the kind of thing that I remember, uh, you know, uh, James Cotton was there, and uh, I, I think he there was a cocaine dealer traveling with that band, and I, they had taken a mule down off the back of the door that was six feet long. He's putting out six foot line coke, and I thought this is just madness. The fact that Cotton lived as long as he did was absolutely astounding to me. That guy must have been made of steel and mercerized thread. Uh, nice guy, great player. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so and Johnny Hooker was there, and, and uh, Hooker had been on stage with me many, many times previous to that and afterwards, too. So, yeah, there was the moment when you go, oh, my goodness, I'm sharing a stage with my heroes, in a way, you know, or guys that I looked up to or guys that came before me. And that's a that's a that's an interesting feeling. Not... Sorry, a little bit after that, you started getting into business ventures, like internet services in 1994, right. consulting in venture capital firms in 1997. Wow, you've been doing some uh, research on me. I guess there's the, <laughs> the evils of Facebook. Yes. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. <laughs> but I'm more curious as to... I mean, just obviously talking to you, you have interest and, and, and you have a sense of business and a sense of wanting to do new things and maybe challenging yourself. But how, how do these things happen? Are you, are you, do you become bored with music or do you think, oh, there's more to life than playing in a band. I want to do, I want to get into tech stocks or whatever. How does that happen? Well, I think, you know, it could sum it up in two words, shiny objects. <laughs> you know, I just, you walk along, and something catches your eye, and you stop, and you pick it up, and you look at it, and you try and figure out what it is. I got a call from a, a woman I knew. One day I was sitting at the studio, and she said, why well, I'm working for this guy? He's a professor from UBC, and and uh, and it's uh, 
I don't get it exactly. There's just a bunch of computers here and all kinds of wires and everybody's wiring into his computers and uh, he's talking out the top of his head about how this is going to be really big and he needs some money and uh, you know to, to do this and maybe you should come over and see it. That was just down a few blocks and I walked in and it was just a tangle of wires and there was this uh, big head guy standing in front of a chalkboard with a few of his employees that didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And it was actually a computer bulletin board, sort of a, I guess what you would call it, a private network. Right. Uh, that was, you know, super, that preceded the internet. And, and uh, I think they had 14.4 modems, little tiny super slow modems and it was and the place was just a mess and he was talking about fiber optics and uh, the information superhighway and this and that and the other and and the phones were ringing and lights were blinking and i thought wow something's happening here so i uh i went home and i tried to read about it to figure out what was going on I started to get an idea and I went back and I said you know you you need to start a public company you need millions of dollars to do this properly what you're talking about and he was from the university and really wasn't used to thinking that way and said and no I just need ten thousand dollars to you know buy a bigger computer right and I said no it's a lot bigger than that but I couldn't I really couldn't get through to him and so I I knew some, I knew a lawyer who knew some people on Howe Street where there's some venture capitalists, and I went in and I said, well, I think this thing is going to be really big. And uh, I think it's a good idea to, to start an internet provider service. And they said, how much money do you need to do that? And I said, well, I could probably do it for about a million bucks, two million bucks. I had just, you know, try to imagine what it would be like to actually get real modems and sit on a fiber cable somewhere and get some bandwidth. And I'd read enough to, to make, have it make sense. And actually, you know, somebody said, okay, yeah, here, here's some money, have a company. And so within probably a year, I went from not owning a laptop to running an internet provider service with, I'd, at that time, I probably had 60 employees, took it public. And uh, TELUS was sort of making noise about trying to get into the provider service with a service they were calling Simpatico. And my financers said, oh, well, if TELUS is getting in, we're finished. And it's a fad anyway, and the Internet is over. And that would have been, I guess, 1997-98. And uh, I said, you're crazy. And uh, I wrote a re resignation letter that day and cashed in all my stock and left the company. Uh, and of course, that was really, I mean, I was going around to, I remember being at my tennis club trying to tell people, explain to people what email was. Or I remember having a meeting with Dairyland, explaining to them that it would be a good idea if they had a website. And nobody in that company had ever even heard the term website. So it was sort of, I mean, a lot of things have happened in the last 25 years. People mm -hmm. forget because we're so tied into that now. But for me, it was just, I already knew about technology from running 
recording studios. And, uh, you know, I had designed with a friend of mine um, some optical noise gates for for a recording studio. And I had studied technique on the real, real early versions of electronic echo units with digital bucket brigade. And I was already uh, composing jingles for advertising agencies for radio and TV. And what I saw in the internet was, it was just the convergence of digital technology uh, and information sharing and advertising. And I felt like I had experience in all those already just from my experience in the music business. And so it didn't really seem like a new area to me. It just seemed like a, a different application to areas I was already somewhat familiar with. But is what where does music stand at that point? Like it sounds like that's a full time job. So is is the powder blues band in the back burner or are you still playing and running this company part time or how does oh, that yeah. work? I, I at the time I was running a recording studio, a publishing company, a management company, a booking agency, and then I started the internet company. I mean, you have people that you put in position to help you with stuff. Right. And you're still producing music. Yeah. I, didn't, I figured I could sleep when I was dead. <laughs> and then in, in, is it 99 that you started the um, Pacific Audiovisual Institute? Yeah. And, and that was, again, that's like, you know, I knew Frank Zappa and toured with him briefly in the early 70s. And uh, that was the name of his band, The Mothers of Invention. So that, that came about, it, it needed to be invented. I was running a big recording studio, a number of rooms and employing quite a few recording engineers. And there was a couple of schools that were taking money from people saying that they were training recording engineers. And they had, would have these kids that had spent 10 grand learning to be a, thinking they were learning to be a recording engineer, you'd show up and show me their diploma and say, can I have a job? And time and again, they hadn't been taught anything. And so I would, if I liked them and thought they were sincere, I might take them on as a, a sort of a gopher, you know, a studio assistant. Right. Yeah, have them work for a week or two for nothing. And, and if they were, you know, worked out, then have put them on, uh, you know, minimum wage and have them try and learn from the other engineers. And I trained a number of recording engineers that way because I had some really good senior engineers and they went on to leave the company and form and go to work for my competitors and start their own recording studios. That was fine with me. I didn't have a, a real problem. But at a certain point, I thought, well, it's a shame that people are spending their money going to schools to not learn what they're supposed to be taught. And so I decided to get into that uh, end of things. That was the first course was uh, audio engineering and production, which was a one year diploma course, which was provincially and federally accredited. And uh, we ran a number of other courses. We ran a, an independent filmmaking course. We ran a computer animation um, and programming course. Um, and that school ran from 99 until 2015. And probably at its peak, we had close to a couple hundred students going, all enrolled in 
one-year diploma programs. And uh, the, the graduates uh, went on to form all kinds of companies and work all over the world. And, uh, and for the most part, it was a, it was a happy experience. I, I closed the school and sold the company when I was ready to shut down my studio in 2015, just because uh, I wanted more. I had young kids and wanted to spend more personal time with them and didn't really feel like working three, four jobs a day anymore. Right. I always remember the, the first time I met you, you, you told me about talking to your dad about being a musician. And he said, well, music's fine, but you know, what happens when that finishes? Do you remember you telling me the story? Yeah, I like, remember like, telling you that. Because it just always struck me that you said, and you didn't know what that was, but you said you were trying to explain to your dad that it wasn't just about making music on your own, but to also produce other people. Yeah, that's you and, got that story right. I, I recall that very well. And I just found that, I don't know. It stuck with me. Just well, the fact I didn't that... know the name of. I didn't know there was a career as a music. You know, I didn't know. I had never heard the term music producer, but mm -hmm. I'm sure that's what I was trying to describe to him. I said, "You go out and find people who are talented and need to make records, and you help them to do that." Which is pretty amazing. I mean, to have that vision. Probably thirteen, fourteen when I said that, or maybe fifteen at the outset, at the outmost. Wow. And and you did it. Yeah, I, I wound up doing that. So, other than learning how to play jazz piano and and having starting a jazz trio, I mean, what else are you working on these days? Well, I mean, I do what I enjoy, and what I enjoy most, I guess, hanging out with my kids. I have a daughter, eleven, and a, a, a son, thirteen. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, we do a lot of reading and studying and, and sports and, and playing and that sort of stuff. It's, uh, it's always so interesting to me to, to do that kind of thing. Um, that's, I enjoy it more than anything else. So that's, that's why I'm doing it. I mean, to it. It's nice to go back too and re-experience things through their eyes. I mean, here's a list of some of the books that I have read out loud to my son in the last few months. Grapes of Wrath, Old Man in the Sea, Of Mice and Men, Animal Farm, Lord of the Flies, The Original Maltese Falcon by Dashiell Hammett, Slaughterhouse-Five by Vonnegut, and uh, right now we're finishing up to Kill a Mockingbird, and he's currently reading 1984 by Orwell on his own. Hmm. So he's going to be 13 in January. And uh, me and my daughter plays the violin and dances, and uh, she doesn't have that same kind of interest in those kind of books, but we read fun books. I read uh, Little Doll and David Williams. And yeah, so I play, play piano and doodle around and uh, hang out with my kids. Those are the things that interest me most right now. Well, you've accomplished so much. It's it's going through your bio. It's quite impressive. Not only as a successful musician, but all the other things that you've been involved with. I don't really feel like I've accomplished. You know, I didn't set goals and, and try and cross them off the list. 
I've just sort of, I find I'm interested in it, pretty well everything. You know, some people say, oh, well, you know, I'll really get into it once I find what I'm meant to do. But just doing is fun. I'm sure I could be completely absorbed in hydropontic tomato growing. It doesn't matter because there's, there's beauty and intricacy and mystery and mastery in everything. In absolutely everything. I'm interested, I've always been interested in everything. And it's just, what I've done has just been what happened to come along. Shiny object. Mm-hmm. Well, what a journey, though. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I, As I remember sitting there with you at the Silver Dollar many, many years ago. I remember and... that well. That As you walk in the door, we were up at the upper left there in a little raised section. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that place is long gone, huh? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Although I think there's like the name is still around, and there, there's another location called the Silver Dollar. I don't know if they're doing any blues right now, but they were going to res- resurrect that name. So, but who knows under these situations? You know, like things have changed drastically for everything. So. Yeah, I mean, I I'd love to go out and play some more. I love hanging out with the guys and and and, and wailing away every once in a while. But I, I don't think it's going to be any time soon. I hope I live to see it. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, it's I really... Pleasure. It's always uh, fun. I hope I didn't bore you. Oh, not at all. <laughs> hey, thanks a lot. All right. We'll talk to you later now. Mm-hmm.